Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Welcome to Mortification of Spin. I'm the host, Carl Truman, along with my two other hosts, Todd Pruitt, pastor of a PCA church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and Amy Bird, author and housewife theologian. Uh, today, we want to talk about uh, a topic that unfortunately seems to come up with remarkable regularity in the church world in which we now live uh, and is unlikely to go away anytime soon. And that is the question of abuse within the church. Uh, many of you will probably be aware of the, the controversy that currently swirls around uh, a man known as Jonathan Fletcher, who is a high-ranking member of the English evangelical aristocracy connected to uh, the Ewan camps, uh, the Ewan camp movement. If you don't know what the Ewan camps are, there are these camps for boys from the elitist of private schools in England and produced such uh, notables in the past as, for example, John Stott. Hmm. Uh, and also Jonathan uh, headed up the Proclamation Trust, which is a, a group, an organization that's done a tremendous amount of good uh, in England in promoting expository preaching and, uh, and placing the, the proclamation of the word at the heart of church life. Anybody watching the, the British evangelical scene will know that a number of years ago, uh, the case of, of John Smith uh, exploded onto the, uh, the newsstands. John Smith was, uh, again, like Jonathan Fletcher, a high-ranking member of uh, the sort of the Ewan uh, constituency and was wanted for, for physically abusing young men at the camps. And those of us who were following this story we're really waiting for the, the next shoe to drop, knowing that it, it would have been impossible in that kind of network for a man like that to have done what he was doing without others being in the know and others being involved. And, and recently, this has uh, exploded in terms now of a scandal surrounding Jonathan Fletcher, who's been suspended from ministry uh, in the Anglican Church and is currently under investigation for uh, alleged abuse of, of young men under his charge. Uh, the question of physical and sexual abuse, of course, is, is one thing, uh, a more subtle perhaps, but maybe equally important and serious a question surrounds the matter of spiritual abuse. Those of you who are long-standing listeners to this program will know that we've talked in the past about spousal abuse and how uh, we do not regard physical abuse as the only serious form of spousal abuse, that emotional abuse, emotional abandonment, these are also categories that we, on mortification of spin, take very seriously relative to uh, relationships between husband and wife. The problem, of course, is when you talk about emotional abuse or spiritual abuse, because there are no physical scars, there is no physical damage that can be empirically verified. You step uh, more and more into the realm of of subjective judgments. 
um, what is and is not abusive behavior. So we want to talk today about spiritual abuse. Does it exist? And how might we define it? How might we discern it when it's going on in our own ranks? Or maybe when we ourselves are tempted to indulge in it in some way. Amy, what do you think? Uh, spiritual abuse, does it or does it not exist? It absolutely exists. And I think that, um, you know, it's always a factor in physical abuse as well in the church. Uh, because, you know, when somebody who is in power uses that power as a way um, to where others don't have the same kind of freedoms and choices then you know, in order to get their own way. Well, that's a spiritual form of abuse. And I know a lot of times where um, affairs have happened with pastors, um, that's a big component that people want to talk about more is abusing his position possibly in, in a counseling situation. And that's why a lot of people talk about whether or not it's wise for pastors alone to counsel, you know, women who are having marital problems and why it's so much uh, more wise to bring in a woman to help with something like that, who's trained because he can become what her husband is not. Yeah. It's very and, easy. It's very easy for a pastor to, to kind of take that on, you know, and sometimes it's intentional. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just a function of the fact that someone sees that pastor and sees them yes. for a very limited slice of his life mm -hmm. and can can create an image of him a romantic image of him that's just not uh, uh fit for reality mm -hmm. and i mean not to say that that pastor's even thinking that he's you know because there's right. different levels of spiritual abuse um there's more intentional levels and then there's i think even sometimes unintentional levels of spiritual abuse where in a situation like that if, if a pastor falls into an affair with a woman through a counseling situation like that, he's using his power in a way that um, is, is borderline abusive, really, because she's in a vulnerable state. Yeah. And I, and I would say, you know, in terms of just trying to, to put a definition to it, I, I suppose we would say that spiritual abuse is something along the lines of a pastor or, you know, elder or a body of elders or a church staff, people who have been given a level of authority, authority perhaps even, you know, from the scriptures. But they leverage that right. authority for their own means to manipulate, to, manipulate um, to exercise right. control, to get money, to get sex, to get power. But they leverage the authority off sometimes a legitimate kind of biblical authority, but they leverage it in unhealthy, self-serving, manipulative ways. Right. Because authority is given to serve, not to be served. And I think that's where the abuse comes in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we, we have to remember also, though, that, that those who are entrusted with a level of authority within the church, for instance, the elders, we're, we're told in, and, and, and this is where we have to be careful. So we're told in, in Hebrews chapter 3, obey your leaders. And, uh, you know, that's language that makes some folks kind of break out in a rash today. But, but we need not apologize for that language. Um, you know, hopefully we're all mature enough to know that obey your leaders, Hebrews chapter 13, isn't the only thing that the Bible says about leadership or to leaders or about leaders. There are then all the other scriptures that talk about the responsibility of, of leaders, things like, uh, you know, and, and the qualifications for leaders like gentleness and godliness and being above reproach 
and, and those kinds of things. And those very leaders that the church is called to obey also in this divinely designed system of governance in the church, they are also, those very leaders are also accountable to the ones they lead as well as well, to the Lord. And, and don't you think a lot of this where the abusive thinking comes into play and maybe a culture where spiritual abuse can become more uh, rampant is when we use a verse like that, obey your leaders, and we apply it as some sort of blanket power that they yeah. have. Yeah. Because authorization is particular tasks, mm -hmm. yeah. not for your whole life. Yeah. So yeah, like, again, the leaders in my church you know, can't tell me what to eat right. for breakfast. Well, or that's, right. that's where I think confessions become important. Exactly. Now, you know, I want to preface this by saying there is no system that one can simply put in place that's going to guarantee uh, a lack of spiritual abuse. The best right. system can be used by the worst people to do bad things. Right. But there are certain things that, that make that more difficult. Right. And I think having a, a good confession, uh, whether you're adhering to one of the historic confessions like the Westminster Confession or your church is producing its own confession. Now, I much prefer, as, okay. as listeners will know, I much prefer the former to the latter. Yeah. But if you have a thorough confession of faith, then I think what, what confessions do is they operate in some analogous way to a kind of bill of rights. We often think about confessions as, as a way of the elders lording it over the congregants. But in actual fact, the confessions, when properly connected to a book of church procedures, limit the power of the elders. So, for example, if I'm a pastor in the OPC, I cannot tell my congregants what color shirts to wear on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. I cannot tell them uh, what they have to eat uh, dinner times. There are all kinds of things that I can't do. Why? Well, the, the Word of God gives me no power in those areas, uh, and the Word of God summarized in the confession is a very easy thing for congregants to be able to point to and say, okay, Truman, you're telling me that I, you know, I need to wear you know, pink and blue striped shirts. Where does it say that in the confession? Mm -hmm. You have no right to demand that of me. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, confessionalism can help here. Okay, it's not a silver bullet that, that stops abuse. There are abusive confessional churches out there of which we are all aware, I'm sure. But it is a, a helpful a helpful tool in the fight against spiritual abuse. Yeah. And so uh, the book of church order in the PCA, and I'm sure in the OPC, you know, forbids uh, elders from using their authority to bind the consciences of people in ways that the scripture does not authorize us to do that. You know, we, we are, our authority extends to the proclamation of the word of God. It is a spiritual authority that is bound to the limits placed upon it by the word of God. You know, I can't tell people who to vote for. I can't tell people where to put their kids in school. I, I can't do those things. I, have, I do not have the power. And if I begin to try, because I, I'm a sinner and so I can break those rules, the, 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 the church I serve has recourse to go to the session and then if necessary to go to the, to the presbytery to, to tell me to stop yeah. misapplying and misusing the authority mm -hmm. that's, that's been vested in me as an elder in the church. Yeah, and in um, cultures where there is a lot of spiritual abuse occurring, um, there is more of this blanket power of authority that isn't checked and limited. And so you see that in a lot of these cases where there's a lot of manipulation going on, but it's almost as if if you were to question what this authority figure is demanding, 
or mm-hmm. asking, um, then you're questioning God himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. So let me, let me throw out an illustration here that might bug some people. In the month of July, First Baptist Church, Dallas, Texas, a flagship church in the Southern Baptist Convention, um, just had, you know, one of their rather well-known patriotic services for the Sunday that was closest to July 4th. And, um, you know, instead of a, a sermon, uh, Oliver North was there to speak. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and of course... Sorry. Yeah, no, no, no. And you can tell him the Duran Duran with the praise band. But, you know, their church choir did their anthem that's titled Make America Great Again. <laughs> That I'm not making any of this up. I'm not making any of this up. And, and but you know that's just one example. I could go back over the last three years in First Baptist Dallas. You know it has this very kind of heavy-handed quote pro Donald Trump thing from the pulpit on Lord's Day mornings. Now, is it wrong um, of me to be feeling the attractions of critical theory? At <laughs> now, the the debate. You know the debate isn't over. Um, uh, you know, what your politics are at this point. Um, I think most people that listen to this know where my politics are. I'm a, I'm a conservative guy. But that kind of a thing makes me, makes me want to set myself on fire and jump out a window. And I consider this doesn't have all the cachet that, or immediate identification cachet that a, that a, that a sexual abuse might have or, or physical abuse. But I would consider that an extraordinary overreach of ministerial authority to set terms politically in, in, on what the congregation is allowed to think and allowed to practice. Now, I have no problem with a pastor getting up and making statements about the morality of abortion, let's say. But, but to put on a service, whether you have Jesse Jackson coming in and shilling for a Democratic candidate or Oliver North coming in and the choir singing Make America Great Again, I, I, would, I would place those things in the category of spiritual abuse, and here's why, because it is an overstep, and it is the use of pastoral authority uh, for illegitimate means. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree within the broad sense there. Well, I think that in some senses, you know, when, you, when we think of what's going on in England at the moment, it's, it's spiritual abuse in a more narrow sense mm-hmm. right. of yep. actually effectively mentally beating up individuals yep. now i'm i'm british and if you guys want to celebrate the colonial rebellion every july the 4th <laughs> i'm a big boy i don't uh-huh. find it particularly yeah. oppressive or abusive right. in the way spectrum. that yeah, well, well you know I, i'm all for um celebrating july 4th in the public square just doesn't belong in the place of worship yeah. on the lord's yeah. day well, i think we all agree yeah. on that well sure. not everybody does unfortunately well but, the three of um, us <laughs> yes yeah, right, right i place it there because I think what happens is, and, and, and this being kind of a broader, what I presented there, kind of this broader application of it, is because that surely is, in my, in my view, a, a misappropriation of pastoral authority. There's no one there in that church that's going to go to Robert Jeffries, the pastor of First Baptist Dallas, and say, hold it. You know, that's manipulation. That's yeah. using well, your authority in an And that's another sign of way. spiritual abuse is like all the yes men to where you mm-hmm. can't question anything. Sure, sure. Yeah, and I think and that- definitely red, red flags. That brings us to another another aspect of, of what's going on in Britain at the moment. And again, I think we can easily think of parallel examples in the United States where you have non-ecclesiastical organizations mm-hmm. or ecclesiastical organizations whose success is intimately tied to the power and privilege success of a particular group or a particular mm-hmm. person. Uh, there is a danger of turning a blind eye to 
accusations of abuse, physical, sexual, and yeah. spiritual, because the organization or the individual is too important or too big to fail. And then I think when the PR muck hits the fan, there can be a temptation to enter into damage limitation mode and attempt to handle the problem oneself. Now, I don't want to make a distinction here. I think when it, when it happens in churches, particularly in denominations, it's, it's complicated. Uh, it's not necessarily immediately straightforward to bring in a, a third party, unless we're dealing with criminal activity, in which right. case any allegations of criminality uh, have to be passed to the authorities as soon as one suspects right. that they are on the cards. But when it's a more general accusation of spiritual abuse of adults, when right. there's no obvious criminality involved, right. particularly uh, if, say, a group like uh, the UN Cam's Proclamation Trust, or if it happened to one of the parachurch groups over here, it needs to be handed over to an outside party to look into, right. A, to make sure that the matter is done fairly and properly, and B, so that you don't look sleazy, even if you aren't sleazy. The yeah. problem with having the insiders or the brotherhood investigating the brotherhood is it looks bad. The little boys network never looks good, yeah. No, or the little girls network for that yeah. matter. Right. As, um, well, you know. and like, if we're talking, and I agree with you on that, um, if we're talking about a church case, though, um, let's say there's a woman who is coming forward who wants to report spiritual abuse to her session. Mm-hmm. Um, at what point does she get assigned, like, is it called an advocate? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I, th- I can give an informal answer on that one. Okay. Uh, when I was on session, uh, we didn't thankfully have many of these issues at all. But whenever somebody was coming to to speak to us like that, we would have we would have allowed the woman to bring right. uh, a friend along. Mm-hmm. Um, when we dealt with the very very difficult case of domestic abuse towards the end of my time there, the lady, you know, it's tough for a, for a woman to come in and mm-hmm. talk about intimate mm-hmm. details of her marriage right. uh, to a room. With a bunch of men, even though she knew us and we were, none of us were particularly frightening, uh, we allowed, I remember saying to her, you know, who do you want to bring with you to make it as easy and as comfortable as possible? So I would say, they made them, I'm not quite sure what the formal answer is relative to formal proceedings, and I would imagine yeah. as soon as discipline is instituted. Yeah. Uh, but I would say as a, as, a, as a rule of thumb, it's important when sessions are dealing with anybody who's bringing uh, a complaint like that, that uh, uh, they're allowed to bring somebody to make them feel comfortable yeah and we've we've done the same thing that i i can think of uh several maybe five just immediately of sensitive conversations that women in our church needed the ears of the the elders on and one of two things happened in every instance that i'm aware of since i've been here either she had someone with her is as she was talking to the elders or to make it even less awkward a committee from the session you know two elders would meet with her and a friend also initially just to hear her out and 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 again like carl i i I don't know if that's required but it's just kind of it it ought to be common sense. Well, you think it ought to be common right. sense, but you hear of so many cases oh, oh, where absolutely. women yeah. are treated. Yeah. And I'm, yeah. I don't want to just say yeah. women. Cause like in the, in the Fletcher case, we're talking about young men. Yep. 
And I can think of other instances where, where, where young men were bullied mm-hmm. um, uh, by, by an all-male. Yeah, yeah, you want to make sure they're being, they're being heard, they're taken seriously, and, tr- and really investigated. Right. I, I would also throw in geography there as well. If the person wants to meet in a neutral third area or wants you to meet them at their home where they feel comfortable, yep. that should also be a factor. It's not yep. just who they're with, but where they are. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you're in a situation things, where yeah. you are unable to bring yeah. someone else in and you're very intimidated and by that, that's a, that would be a red flag, wouldn't you think? Yeah. Like, but there's yeah. a real problem here. Yeah. And, and again, sometimes somebody can mm-hmm. feel uncomfortable because they feel a lot of guilt because they've done something really wrong. But other times they can feel uncomfortable for, I mean, listen, I would be uncomfortable if I had to sit in front of a group of men and, and talk about something that was really, oh, yeah. I mean, you know, I would be uncomfortable. So it's humiliating, really. Right. I mean, it's, you have exactly. to say these things out loud that right. happened to you. And so, and so the, the hope then in terms of, 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 of how we're thinking about spiritual abuse, the hope is that you're in a church with elders who are sensitive towards those things. And if, and if you're with, and if you've got elders that, that cannot seem to understand that um, that there are things they can do to lighten the load on the shoulders of a person who's in this who's in a difficult situation like that. You know, the question is, why don't they understand, or do they understand, and they just simply? Well, it could be one of the elders want to beat their chest. You know, I yeah. mean, the abuse could be coming from one of the elders. Sure, sure, yep, that's true. And fortunately, I haven't had to deal with a situation like that. But again, you know, it's always when we've had to have. Uh, a conversation either because of a, a woman in our church who's struggling on a marriage thing that's very sensitive and could be a disciplinary action concerning her husband. We have been very sensitive to not just put her in a room full of men right. for common sense pastoral reasons. And I can also tell you when it's been a situation where there's a woman who might need to be under discipline, we've always involved at least one other woman in the process mm-hmm. and a committee or a commission of the session instead of the whole group immediately. We've always yeah. done that. Yeah. To me, that's common sense well, pastoral stuff. It's easy even in small churches for someone to appear to be too big to fail. Oh, and sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's why yeah. I've said to talk about that, like, you know, yeah. Yeah. even if let's say the abuser is, you know, could be really close friends with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the elders are one of the elders and they don't want to believe that about that person, you know? Right. And I would say, you know, a couple of things, be very suspicious of anybody outside an ecclesiastical setting who wants to make you accountable to them. Yes. Mm. Accountability is something that should take place within the church. Not that the church is, is free of corruption. We, we see evidence of, of the abuse of that all around us, but there's no reason why anybody, you should be accountable to anybody outside of the context of, mm. of your church. Uh, and secondly, be very suspicious of the person to whom everybody is accountable and appears to be accountable to nobody himself. Yes. Mm-hmm. That I think is, I don't know the details behind the scenes of the Jonathan Fletcher thing, but I wonder, you know, first of all, people being accountable to him, that's kind of weird being as it's not a church situation. Uh, and two, to whom was he accountable? Mm-hmm. Just to his pals of the same rank? Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not. I don't know. But it seems to me that I remember some years ago, somebody pointing to a student at Westminster and saying, you know, the odd thing about that guy is he's very keen on everybody being accountable to him. 
<laughs> and he doesn't seem to be accountable to anybody else. Yeah, yeah. And that, I think, is uh, a real red flag. Mm-hmm. And really I, I just want to throw something out here also because of some of the, um, the well-known cases we've, we've seen over here in conservative evangelicalism, um, it, like, for instance, Mars Hill and the, and the Mark Driscoll uh, debacle, that kind of thing, Harvest and, and James McDonald. There are times when, uh, along with the abusive pastor, there are times when the church has to repent as well. You know, Mars Hill was happy for Mark Driscoll to strut around and flex his muscles for a long time, uh, as long as the church was, was really growing and booming and, and didn't have too much controversy. Success it, is the absolution. Exactly. Success is a great absolution. Exactly. Same thing was happening at Harvest. People knew for years that there were real problems, but there are times when churches really like having a famous pastor. And there are wonderful famous pastors out there, but, but there are others that aren't. And as long as the church is growing and is the place to go and, and we've got the best preacher, churches have turned a blind eye to abuse as well. And oftentimes the, the, the repentance process involves not only those directly involved in, in the, in the spiritual abuse, but, but those who willingly enabled them as well. And sometimes it's just the, the congregation, you know, how does a congregation um, in our circles, you know, conservative evangelical, you know, reformed or reformed ish, you know, kinds of churches. um, How do they get to the place where they have an income stream to their pastor of over a million dollars a year and no accountability? (sighs) They allow those kinds of things to happen, and they shouldn't. Yeah. Finances are often a key bellwether of what's going on. Right. Are the accounts transparent? Right. But even the- Congregation don't see the accounts. There's a problem straight away. Yeah. Yeah. But even the the study that just came out with all the sexual abuse cover-up within churches in the Southern Baptist Convention, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, these are small churches, too. A lot of, most of them were smaller churches. All over the place. Yep. yep. Most of them were smaller churches. Problem. And, you know, these are sexual abuse cases, um, physical. Yep. There was mandatory reporting in those cases, Amy, you know, and it didn't happen. Yeah. And and so, exactly. Cover up is almost worse than the abuse itself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't understand. Nothing will change until decent, ordinary people like us who don't report when they should start going to prison. Yeah. Yeah, exa- exactly. And that's the scary part for a lot of yeah. people. Yeah. Well, well, obviously, this is a huge topic, and, and it's the kind of topic that needs to be discussed because churches uh, that end up uh, abusing people spiritually, I mean, leaving aside the physical abuse and the sexual abuse, but just, you know, the, the overhanded, heavy-handed kind of controlling spiritual manipulation, they leave such wreckage. Um, in their wake. Uh, there is a, uh, a, a really helpful book that was written a number of years ago, and I really appreciated the book because I think it has a, a very uh, biblical um, but also grace-filled approach to church discipline. And one of the things we don't want to happen is that when there's spiritual abuse, we end up throwing out the good with the bad. And the fact is, that, you know, the Bible uh, prescribes church discipline because it is for our good, it's for the glory of the Lord, it's for the witness of the church, but it needs to be practiced biblically and faithfully and lovingly and for the right reasons. And um, among the books out there that that I have found to be very, very helpful is um, uh, one by Mark Lauterbach called uh, The Transforming Community. And uh, if you would uh, hop over to our 
website, mortificationofspin.org. You can enter to win a copy. I think pastors and sessions ought to read this and, and let this go into to how they inform their own practice of giving care and oversight and at times when necessary discipline in their churches. And I think they'll find it helpful. But you can go to our website to win a copy of that. And while you're there, uh, remember that Mortification of Spin is a listener-supported podcast. And if you'd like to make a donation to the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals so that they can continue to provide this sort of content, uh, then you can feel free to do that. Well, we look forward to speaking with you next time here on the Mortification of Spin. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about... Let me put this in a really tactless way. (laughs) How, how weird was your upbringing growing up in, in, the, in the kind of the Benny Hinn world? It must be fascinating, I, I would imagine. Weird for you, but normal for me. <laughs> so That interview is next time. Join us then. Our guest today is uh, Danny Hyde. Best dressed uh, man in the URC, something like that. <laughs> yeah. so, it's a bit like best dressed man in the OPC, you know, tallest building in Topeka, Kansas. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, is, um, <clears throat> is everybody ready? Yeah. Okay. Well, you are... W- you got to stop the ciggies, man. There's man, beginning to there's eat something those in the air. Away. There's something in the yeah, air. Yeah, tobacco smoke. I oh, think. well, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. There we go.